This is On Being's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with S. James Gates, Jr. He is the John S. Toll Professor and Director of Center for String and Particle Theory at the University of Maryland. I spoke with him on November 22, 2005, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was at WAMU Studios in Washington, D.C. This interview is included in our show, Einstein's Ethics. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Sonic world. That's right. <laughs> to meet you, so to speak. Indeed. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Well, um, let's just say I'm not without trepidation on this matter. Why is that? Because of the title of the show? Well, that's partly it, but partly whenever the word faith comes up, mm-hmm. uh, I... I, I'm concerned because it's a word that's, in my opinion, misused in so very many ways and often wielded as a weapon against people. Well, I agree with that, and that's part of the reason we started this program, to um, illuminate the many ways that this, the, the intellectual and spiritual content of this word, the word itself is a problem, it's so loaded, um, in many lives and disciplines and pursuits. And to give that yes. some substance. And and also, we really, you know, we don't accept the parameters of the debates as given. Yes. And well, we try to start new conversations. Sure. And it's, uh, that was one of the reasons that uh, after I reviewed some of your previous programs, I said, you know, this seems like something I can support. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I really am glad. And, and, you know, this is not a live interview, and I don't think I'm going to ask you anything that makes you remotely uncomfortable. But if I do, <laughs> you just don't have to answer. <laughs> well, even if it were a live interview, I always retain that option. <laughs> that's right. That's true. Um, but I, I uh, you know, what we're, uh, do, do you have any questions of me about this particular program or about how we're getting at Einstein? No, not really. I mean, I, you know, you, I, I guess it was uh, Colleen sent me uh, essentially an outline of what, what's going on, and she gave me the name of a few other people that yeah. you had interviewed. And it all seemed fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's always an honor to be considered in a group with Freeman Dyson. Oh, yeah. He was wonderful, too. Oh, he's, he's an incredible man. Yeah. And, you know, it was very special to talk to him as somebody who was was around and became a physicist when Einstein was at the height of his power. So he, he just Absolutely. had this lovely perspective. Absolutely. I've heard a few stories about uh, that. I'm not sure they came directly from Friedman, but they were about Friedman and his, some of his um, observations about Einstein. Yeah. We didn't... Um, you know, the the sad thing for me is we, we can't, uh, especially when we're doing a great big show like this, you know, all of the interview doesn't make it into the show. <laughs> but the g- wonderful yes, thing about the time in which we're living is the Internet. And we have this fabulous website and world-class web producer. And so we'll right. be able to put a great deal of material on the website. And I'm excited that people will be able to go into much greater depth than even the radio show will take them. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. Uh, that's very encouraging, and that's like you said, one of the magics of the uh, of internet yeah. and the air, the time in which we live. It's it's a wonderful communication tool, but it is. it's one that uh, I I still well, I do a lot of travel, for example, in Africa, and although everyone around the world is aware of the web and email, what lots of people, and it's not just in third world countries, but even here in the U.S., lots of people do not understand 
that the purpose of the internet was to foster greater communications among people. Mm-hmm. And it's, they think of it as sort of a marketing tool or, or something for gaming, but not just to foster communication, which from the point of view of, of us physicists is amazing right. since that's exactly why physicists created the darn thing. Yeah. You know, I actually, I actually talked to Freeman Dyson about that because his most recent book is The Sun, the Genome, and the Internet. Mm-hmm. And I asked him what he thought Einstein would think of the Internet. But I think you also mm. just gave me, <laughs> you know, an approach to that question. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Are we... So I'm looking at my Internet. Okay. All right. I've just been instructed to stop playing with my pen. Now, I hear... <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is the sophisticated communication we have at this end. I, I'm hearing a slight echo. Do you hear it, Mitch? Uh, the engineer at this end is shaking her head. No. No. C- could you could you ask her if you could turn your headphones down slightly? See if okay, that helps. she wants to know if my headphones can be turned down... Uh, Keep talking. Blue knob. Are you doing it now? Okay, hang on a second. I've got the. Yes, I have just spotted the blue knob. Okay. Now you have to understand. In my household, my wife programs all the VCRs. So <laughs> when I hear about blue knobs, I get a little bit scared. Yeah. Well, when okay, the rest of us hear about supersymmetry, we get scared. So <laughs> okay, so I'm turning equal. the knob down. Is the echo still there? I think we're fine. I don't hear my voice. Yeah, we're great. Okay. Okay, let's go. And um, you know where I'd like to begin is just to ask you. I've read other interviews you've given and some things you've written, and um, but I, I'd really like to hear if, if you. It sounds to me like you had an interest in mathematics and physics from a, a pretty early age, and I wonder if you recall when you first heard about Albert Einstein, or if this was a figure oh, yes. that no, was formative no, 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 no. for you. Yeah, not necessarily formative, but I certainly recall when I first heard of Albert Einstein. Um, it was when I was in high school. We, I, as a junior, I took a course in physics, and I had this fabulous teacher, a gentleman by the name of Freeman Coney, and as part of this physics course, which I'll talk about those circumstances later, <laughs> we were introduced to the theory of special relativity. So that was really my first direct uh, recollection of encountering Albert Einstein through his scientific work. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I've seen pictures of him. In fact. Uh, it's impossible to grow up in our society without seeing caricatures of Albert Einstein because the you know the wild white hair and <laughs> the goofy professor and all of these in some sense or another are tributes to Albert Einstein. It's it's interesting, isn't it, that a scientist has that kind of profile, even so many years after his death. Well, I think he's somehow more alive now than perhaps when he was alive. <laughs> right. It's true. It's a very strange fate uh-huh. that seems to, you know, it happens to some, some, this seems to be a fate that happens to some people that uh-huh. they go on past their technical death to have a, a, a second life in a very real way. Yeah. Well, as you went on to deepen your interest in mathematics and physics, and, and my understanding is that you you began your career very much in the in the type of mathematical physics that um, that Einstein that was very kindred to to the way Einstein worked. Is that right? That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an odd circumstance in my life when I reflect upon it because I didn't set out to do this. I I um, wound up working on problems that I think he would have 
likely have worked on if he had lived it in our present time. Mm-hmm. But it, that was never my goal to emulate Albert Einstein. I, I'm not sure any young scientist ever has that as a goal. But the kinds of problems that I that fascinate me, as well as sort of I've observed in myself kind of a, a, a um, preference to think in terms of geometry. These seem to be the sorts of things that... Uh, were his major tools. So in that sense, I guess I had no choice. Okay. And if I asked you, well, let me just say also, as we go through, um, you know, I, I don't understand super string theory. And I think that that's all right, because most of my listeners won't, won't understand it either. And I do well, want... that's okay, you know, because I, it's not clear that we scientists understand that it. That you either. understand it either. But I, I, uh, as, we, as we get into the technicalities, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, ask you to explain things, and we'll try to, keep, we'll try to have a sophisticated conversation without um, talking about things that would take any... That, that would go over our heads. But I don't even need to say that. I'm just, that's just kind of a, an aside. But... Okay, but that disclaimer was totally unnecessary. Was it? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I do ma'am. know that. I, I you know, know, I have a lot you. of, you yes. know, I often have occasion to speak to the public, uh, particularly about string theory and yeah. physics, and so. Well, on your website. One, one thing I've one thing I've actually come to conclude is the following: that mm-hmm. uh, the public has a language for understanding these things, but that most times we scientists don't take the time to learn that language. Okay. So I actually think the public's a lot brighter than most people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if I asked you, and I guess the reason I made that disclaimer there is, you know, I, I, f- I feel like I may ask you some questions, which sounds simplistic, but you're telling me that that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell my students, uh, I tell my students there are no dumb questions, and that's, to the first approximation, that's almost right. There really aren't dumb questions. Right. There, there are people who don't perceive... Um, the, don't perceive the need for a question, but I don't really believe in dumb questions. Okay. And we will be directing people to your website where you have that's very wonderful layers of explanation and, and you can go harder. Or <laughs> Interestingly easier. enough, that's not my website. Oh, that's not your website? <laughs> I actually have no website. Well, I, I mean, does, I have a very... Well, well you know what website I'm a, talking about, right? I know exactly which one you're yeah. talking about. I have a very paltry website, which is at my home university. However, I have a friend named Warren Siegel with whom I worked at an earlier stage of my career. And he has this beautifully layered website that people <laughs> okay. wander into because he and I worked together. And right. In fact, we wrote a, an, uh, we may have written the first popular article on string theory uh, in 1986 together, something hmm. for a campus paper. And so oftentimes times people wander in there and they find it. Okay. All right. Well, if I asked you to describe, you know, to say something about what you understand as the the character and the values of, of Einstein's legacy for a scientist of your generation? Now, that's a big question, but how might you approach that question? Well, uh, let's first of all uh, restrict my response. Namely, I will be talking only about the science and uh, not about the larger aspects of Einstein's life. As you know, this is an Einstein world year of physics, and I must admit I've come to know him in far greater detail and with far greater fidelity than I had ever imagined. Mm-hmm. But if, if, we, if we restrict ourselves to science, I think there are some pretty clear lessons. Um, first of all, he was an exceptional scientist working in an extremely exceptional manner. And by this I mean, uh, if you actually look at what Einstein did and listen to what he says about it, you come away with a very interesting story. Essentially, 
whenever his great moments of insight occurred, he cast them in the form of parables. Hmm. So, for example, uh, the great breakthrough of special relativity, which occurred in 1905, Mm -hmm. if you listen to him, he'll tell you that it all began with him wondering what the world would look like if he could ride along on a beam of light. That's a story. (laughs) That's a parable. And his greatest work, uh, the work that leads to the theory of general relativity and our coming to understand that there's this thing called the Big Bang and that our universe has been evolving for about 13.6 billion years. If you listen to his story about how he started that, it goes, one day I was looking out of the window from the patent office, which is interesting because this is 1907, two years after his breakthrough year, mm-hmm. he's, he's still in the patent office. Right. <laughs> and, and he says, there are some workers working on a roof. And, I had a, and a thought occurred to me, a thought he refers to as the happiest thought of his life. If one of the workers should fall off the roof, he would, feel, would not feel his weight. And from this, from this single parable story, he begins to weave this perhaps greatest scientific achievement uh, that our species has yet seen. Hmm. So it's an exceptional way to work that here's someone who looks at the world, asks very simple questions about the world, and recognizes in asking the questions that they contain an essentially uh, deep and fundamental fact one which, curiously enough, when he asks, he does not understand, but he knows the question is right. Hmm. So, I mean, and you, you've said previously that, I'm sorry, <coughs> that, that scientists um, inherited from Einstein a new sense of the power of human creativity as a force in the sciences. Is, is that what uh, you're describing there also? That's exactly what I'm describing right. because the standard way in which science was done before and after Albert Einstein essentially starts off by observation. These observations are then uh, recorded in a very detailed manner. Then a set of mathematical models or formulae are developed to explain the observation. And then often it's only at that point that someone begins to ask, "Why why do the equations work? And then we get sort of a second breakthrough, a more a deeper model. And then when this deeper model is formulated, it implies something we hadn't thought about before. And then you go out and you check and you see that this thing you hadn't thought about occurs. And then you say, well, oh, my goodness. We, there's a perfect uh, example of this in, in the history of uh, electromagnetism. Uh, in 1876 or 74, James Clark Maxwell writes four equations. And these equations describe everything that we know about how electricity and magnets work. Now, now the interesting thing about the equations is that most of the work in these equations was, in fact, not done by him. It was done by a whole series of scientists that precede him. Mm -hmm. And these equations were developed by looking in the laboratory and looking at how magnets work and how currents work and then writing down mathematical expressions. Maxwell looks at the equations and realizes that there's an inconsistency in them. He adds one term, which we now call the Maxwell displacement term. It removes the inconsistency, but it also makes a prediction that no one had ever thought about before. The prediction is that electricity and magnetism can move through space without any wires, and they do so at the speed of light. Hmm. And in fact, that light is a form of these electromagnetic waves. 
In the 1880s, another scientist named Hertz tests this prediction. He finds it's true. And that's why, for example, all of your people who listen to radio may have heard the expression megahertz. Right. Well, the hertz there is a man's name. Hmm. Now you've... All right, so electromagnetism, and I do want to understand this somewhat, is is the force which... Which, um, and again, this is going to be simple, but the force which which Einstein longed near the end of his life, at the, in the latter decades of his life, to reconcile with what he'd come to understand about gravity. And he was, is that is that a, a correct? That uh, is exactly right. But you see, there's a curious prequel to Einstein's story because you, I just told you how Maxwell mm-hmm. wrote equations to describe electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. Guess what he tried to do next? I don't know. He wanted to reconcile gravity with his equations. Oh. So there's a strange bookend in history that's little noted that the man who first describes electricity and magnetism with a stunning success, I mean, we owe all of our high technology and communications to this, you know, to this one gentleman. Right. He goes on and tries to combine gravity with his equations and utterly fails. On the other hand, you have Einstein who has the stunning success of general relativity, which describes the Big Bang and the universe and gravity who then tries to reconcile electromagnetism with the equation, and he fails. Okay. So it's a, it's a, this is a very, to me, when I came across this fact, it, to me was one of the oddest discoveries mm-hmm. that I had ever noted in the history of science. But Maxwell's attempt in these directions is often not noted. So I'd like to understand now, now in, in the first uh, part of this series, these are two programs, I've talked with Freeman Dyson and Paul Davies, and, you know, we did get into... The great, uh, the great unfinished work of Einstein, and, and and which included his his dismay with the idea of quantum mechanics and quantum physics, and the kind of disorder that was that was found and observed at that smallest level of physics. Explain to me, and that's what he couldn't he couldn't reconcile that with what he understood of the large forces of time and space and gravity. Now, is electromagnetics connected to quantum physics? The answer is paradoxical, but it's the answer is yes and mm-hmm. no. Okay. The answer is no because when Maxwell wrote his great work in the 1870s, no one had ever thought about quantum anything. So his work was based on classical physics, people going to the laboratory, making classical measurements, and then coming back and quantifying them in terms of mathematics. So in that sense, electromagnetism is not connected to quantum theory. On the other hand, the first person who begins to think of this idea of quantum Mm -hmm. is someone, a physicist by the name of Planck, and he is exactly trying to understand how heat and uh, energy are carried by electromagnetic fields. So it's in that context that quantum actually gets born. Someone's wondering about a particular property about essentially about how things can warm up. They're wondering about this property. There are measurements, and the only way to understand the measurements is that light itself comes in packets. So light actually gives rise to the idea of the quantum. Okay. And those packets are what people, are, are, are one, one thing people are talking about when they talk about particles? Yes. Okay. Uh, let me try to give an analogy Particle for physics. that. All right. Yes. Um, you know, when you look at the ocean... It looks like a a great continuum. And you say, there's gee, there's water everywhere. 
And on a wind-blown day, of course, you can actually watch the great waves be blown up. And then some of the water breaks off and you see droplets that go through the air. Or if you're standing there on the shore, uh, you can get hit by the mist. And so the question becomes, even though you thought there was this great continuum of water, is there a smallest packet of water? The answer is yes, a single water molecule, right? I mean, all that great ocean you see is composed of water molecules and other pollutants, perhaps. But it, it's composed of a basic packet. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's the way energy works. There and is a billions and billions packet. and billions of them. Oh, well beyond mm -hmm. the numbers billions. Mm -hmm. Well beyond the mm -hmm. numbers of billions. Okay. All right. So, you know, Einstein made his most famous quip about God or invoking the word God, not meaning that word in, in any kind of traditional religious sense, but... Um, as he did speak of God and the mind of God in his science, and he said, God does not play dice with the universe. And he was rejecting the indeterminacy and the and the seeming chaos at that level of particle physics and in quantum physics. And you, and, and to the end of his life, he wanted to find a unified field theory. He wanted to combine what he had learned about gravity, which is still the best knowledge we have, and what was being learned at this smaller level. Um, and in this these fields of electromagnetics and quantum physics, and you correct me if I'm saying any of this incorrectly, but what's it's very intriguing to me that you are now working, you are kind of a direct descendant of his in, in terms of that endeavor. So, so I, hmm? I and my community are his inheritors. Okay. I think that, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we have received this great legacy, mm -hmm. and those of us who work on this are attempting to add to it and make sure and make sure that it's consistent and ultimately that it is of benefit to our species because I think that's that's the thing that animates Einstein in so many ways. Einst so, animates yes, his science? I think so. Mm -hmm. I truly think so. Um, it's, you know, Einstein says, you know, if you read, the more I have read about Einstein, the more I've been struck by the fact that even though, you know, as a person, perhaps he wasn't such a great, uh, he certainly was not a great husband. Yeah. And uh, we, you know, we know about the stories about his um, first failed marriage and his second marriage. And even throughout the second marriage, there were many affairs and what have you. So he clearly wasn't, he was no paradigm. In fact, he says this about himself, that he's no paradigm, right. uh, no grand model. But one thing that's really curious about Einstein is his expressions of, well, love is the only way I know how to say it, for humanity as a whole. Mm -hmm. There's this one wonderful quote that I uh, found and gave in a speech earlier this year, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but roughly speaking, he says something like, um, this is a, children address, a letter addressed to the children of Japan. He says something like, um, I have before me uh, a book on the beauties of your culture and the wonderful natural areas, and I keep this ever before me and therefore feel that I can make a special appeal to you, the children of Japan. Um, he talks about, one of his statements uh, is to the effect that um, that a hundred times a day he is reminded of all he has received from others, both living and dead, and due to this, he must work very hard in order to return this. I mean, these are the kinds of quotes you can find. And, mm -hmm. and again, I've paraphrased, but roughly speaking, that's the sentiment he expresses. And so he feels deeply connected to mankind. That, that's completely clear from these statements. 
And so I think that a part of, as I have read the body of work, his own writings and the body of work about him, part of what what I believe he thinks science should be is, it's an old-fashioned phrase, but the servant to humanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, science is supposed to serve humanity. It's supposed to make life better in his view, worldview. I'm convinced that that he had that as a deep belief. I want to pursue this in a couple of different directions, but but before we move on specifically from the science, I mean, you know, it it does seem to me as a as a complete outsider to this way of thinking and being in the world, just um, this scientific way of being in the world, that there that there is some echo even of that approach to humanity in his longing um, and and his determination to find a unified. Uh, way to describe the universe, and and I, I wonder, I want you know, I want to ask you, as you said, as one of his inheritors, and as somebody who's working in these new fields of string theory and supersymmetry, what which are which are a, an an advanced attempt um, at the to achieve that unity. You know, is that is there kind of an ethic um, that is reflected in that science? Well, I I I don't know if there's an ethic. I, in many, as I've experienced my profession, which is obviously the one in which he achieved so very much, I've been struck by the fact that in many ways, being a theoretical physicist is being like a composer of music. Hmm. And it, I, I mean, in fact, I think there's only one essential difference between the two, namely that for musical composers, the one's uh, ability is judged by the nature of the audience, whereas in theoretical physics, it's the audience of nature that provides the judgment. Hmm. So it's, if there's an ethic, it's, a, it's an ethic that involves human creativity. It's an ethic with a, an absolute a commitment to removing falsehoods from our system of belief. Many people often are confused about what is the essential nature of science. And again, I'll paraphrase Einstein. Once he said he wasn't even sure the phrase scientific truth had any meaning. And for someone who's worked in science, I think I understand that what that means because, you see, science is not about truths. What science is about is making our beliefs less false. Hmm. And that's why... It's tied to experiment. We, we know we see in society today, we see attempts to redefine science, but science has always been defined in a, a very circumspect manner. Namely, we will, we will call science what we can disprove. That's a simpler way to think of right. what is science. I remember reading um, when I was getting ready to interview Freeman Dyson, a review he wrote of a book by John Polkinghorne in the New York Review of Books, and Polkinghorne is a scientist and a theologian. And, yes, and, I, I'm yeah, very much aware of that. I've, I've done a program with him, which was wonderful. But but Dyson made the point that, that theology and science go about determining truth in completely different ways because, as you said, that science will will determine what is not true to get closer to the truth and and theology will will posit <laughs> an ultimate truth and then and then take the discussion from there. Yes, well, you know, one thing that's really curious is even Galileo said something like that. Mm-hmm, I mean, it goes mm-hmm, back that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, Galileo's comment, and again, I'm paraphrasing, was roughly speaking, 
that there are two ways to understand, uh, there are two ways of understanding God. One of them is to study uh, his works, and the other is to contemplate the deep truths that come to us in the form of religion. Again, paraphrasing, but roughly speaking, that's what he said. So, you know, they are really two very, very different ways of approaching uh, the word truth. And in fact, in science, we can't, we can never claim to know truth. That's one thing that confuses people. We don't claim to know truth in science. What we claim is that we have provided the best humanly possible explanation for what we see in the world around us. That's what science is all about. Mm-hmm. How do you experience um, the, the the turns of phrase? You know, you know Einstein often said that from the very beginning, you know, what he wanted to do was understand what God was thinking. Yeah. And could God have created the universe any other way? Any other way, And he, yeah. he invoked this phrase, the mind of God, which, again, is very ancient and has been used in different ways and by other scientists. Sure, How do you react sure. to those as a 21st century scientist? Well, you know, let's see. I, I guess, first of all, I have to perhaps say a few things about my personal history. I, I um, spent all of my years in high school in the South, in Orlando, Florida. And it was a traditional African-American community, and it's a community that is has a very strong belief in religious faith. And so I, retreat, uh, I received all my religious training as a teenager in the context of the African-American Episcopal Church. Right. I have never in my own personal life found a schism between doing science and having religious beliefs. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I simply do not understand how people come to such conclusions. The th- one of the odd things to me is that it is very rare for scientists to attack religious beliefs, but it seems much more common for people of deep religious faith to find parts of science extremely objectionable. We saw this with Galileo when, you know, he posits right. that the Earth is not at the center of the universe and almost has to pay with his life for making such a statement. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, we see this played out again in our society today with the whole debate of intelligent design where people of deep religious beliefs are simply offended by the notion that what science tells us as our best efforts uh, is inconsistent with their their religion. And, you know, so those of us on the side of science are just, as I said, we're we're just puzzled. We don't understand how people... (laughs) come to these conclusions. And so certainly for me personally, I've, I've just, I, I've never had a point where I had to ask myself, uh, do I, is it my religion or is it my science? It's both. Okay. It's always been for me both. Do you find, um, I mean, for Einstein, there was no place to think about God. Well, I mean, there was a place. I mean, he did, in fact, you know, have a have what could be called a very religious perspective. But for him, the laws of physics were paramount. And, and whatever mind or creative genius or spirit there was behind the universe would, would, would respect those laws and couldn't be acting in history as the, as Christian and Jewish and Muslim faith um, assert. Although, you know, many will say that the way physics has evolved, there's a lot more randomness and room for maneuver, perhaps for human beings and for the idea uh, of a, of God in creation. I mean, I don't know. I wonder, from your perspective, from the work you do, do you experience that? Or how, what's your reaction to that idea? Well, 
you know, the notion of God is, well, the, I, I saw a recent statistic that said, roughly speaking, that something like 40% or maybe 50% of scientists have a belief in a superior being that communicates with uh, people. Yeah. And that sounds about right to me. I mean, most of my colleagues have, most of us who certainly come from this society come with religious training. So we're not the godless atheists that uh, many people would like to portray scientists as being. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly in, in Einstein, I mean, one, again, since we're talking about Einstein and God, let me, let me just tell you one of my, another one of my favorite quotes, which I don't see so often out there. He says, My religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details we are able to perceive with our frail and feeble mind. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power, which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe, forms my idea of God. In your que- in phrasing your question to me, you ask about the law. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think perhaps that's the point of overlap between science and this, certainly this kind of fundamental science and religion. Both posit that the law is something that is paramount. Uh, if we read the Christian Bible, there's a phrase that goes something like, in the beginning there was the word. And if we interpret the word as meaning law, mm-hmm. then it's n- there's not such a conflict. In fact, perhaps science can, scientists and science can be described as taking that statement on its face value, meaning <laughs> that the law is absolute. Because certainly that's, that's a working premise with us. That's why, you know, people like me can confidently stand up and say, you know, when the universe was about 300,000 years old, there was a first dawn because we see the laws that make such a statement. Mm-hmm. And the law in science is paramount. So, you know, as long as we can come to agreement on these terms, then I don't, like I said, I don't see how the conflict can arise. Where the conflict most often arises, I believe, is that particular groups and particular people want to enforce their particular understanding of the word God and religion. And I think that Einstein certainly would have been one to say, no, you cannot do that because I have the right to question. Right. I have the right to use my intellect to solve those questions. And anything less than that is, in fact, not honoring that superior intellect that likely put us here. Anything less than that is not an acknowledgement of that. It's something else. So in some sense, it's a very deeply, perhaps anti-religious point of view to have, that mm-hmm. we shouldn't reason. Right, right. And and I think also that, and this was reflected a bit in that lovely quote that you read, that Einstein thought that God, if there is such a thing as God, must be as much a, about beyond our comprehension and about what we can't understand, about mystery as what we can pin down and ascertain. And he was delighted in that, or you know, it was perfectly yes, well, fine you know, for him to you, stick you, with you that. You use the word mystery. You know, mm-hmm. there's another thing he said, that something like mystery is the fairest emotion we can experience. Mm-hmm. It is the, it is the uh, beginning of both art and science. Right. So that mystery to him certainly had an allure. Yeah. I want to ask you a more precise question, though. I mean, um, if I asked you to, I mean, Einstein did reflect um, on 
conclusions he could draw about beauty and mystery and and um and the mind of god based on the science he did and you know is there anything you would say about what you're learning in string theory and supersymmetry in these fields you're working in that are advancing einstein's work that um make you think differently about the nature of the universe or the cosmos or this this great mystery the mind of god well I'm not sure if it may, given my, you know, I've talked about my my background and my uh-huh. training in religion. So given that, no, I, I have not seen mm-hmm. any great surprises. However, there's something in string theory that is exceedingly, well, I, I don't see it discussed very much in the popular domain, but there's something about string theory that I find exceedingly fascinating. It's this. In all of our previous attempts to understand the universe, there were always options about whether we were sort of there. We Even human Einstein, beings. Well, we human beings, but, I mean, all I can really say at this point in, on firm ground is our parts, you know, the atoms that make up matter, okay. and how they're put together. Okay. Those things were always optional. And this is even true of Einstein's great work uh, on the theory of general relativity. If you look at the equation, it's got two sides. One side of the equation describes the behavior of space and time. The other side of the equation is where we come in. But the thing that's curious about his great equation is that we don't have to be there. That is, Einstein's equations work as a beautiful description of space and time with nothing else. And so I often, when I speak to the public, I've said on occasion that one way to understand the equations of general relativity is to think of them as the architectural plans of the grandest and most beautiful stage on which you can, which you can ever conceive. Mm. But those plans don't include the plays. They don't include the characters. Okay. They don't include the actors. And the equation is perfectly consistent in that state. Now, the thing that's really odd about string theory is that if you ask the, uh, the same question the mathematical consistency of the equation rules out a stage with no actors and no plays. Hmm. And so it's a, it's a curious, like I said, a bit of philosophical point to, to, to perhaps contemplate, which I've not seen in the popular debate, but it's very definitely there in the equations. Any equation that you can write in string theory that describes a universe like ours with four dimensions must necessarily have in it atoms. Hmm. And that's interesting. It is interesting. And and presumably Einstein would have liked that, or would he have resisted that the way he resisted quantum physics? Well, it's not completely I mean, I'm I know I you know, I've read all and I know a lot is made about Einstein's views of quantum physics, but at the I think had he lived long and longer, I suspect he would have made his peace with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me let me make an analogy with another great physicist that perhaps you and your listeners are aware of, a guy named Richard Feynman. Right. I had the um, great joy and pleasure to uh, be a postdoc at Caltech while Richard Feynman was alive. And I remember once watching a television program where he was being interviewed. And in the program, they were asking him about uh, what we now call quantum chromodynamics, the theory of quarks. And at the time of the interview, he was exceedingly skeptical that there could be anything to this. Well, a year or so later, when I actually heard him talk about it, he was the most fantastic enthusiast. I suspect that 
if Einstein had had enough time, I suspect he would have come to be an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, people like Einstein and Feynman are driven by the acquisition of a view of the universe which has a type of fidelity to correctness and what we see in the laboratory. That's what drives great physicists. It's not all about the beauty. It's it's about getting it right in the laboratory. And quantum mechanics, people can disagree with it, but quantum mechanics is the best tested piece of science our species has ever possessed. Hmm. So it's not it's not random and gee, it's not gonna work. If people don't believe in quantum mechanics, they should never pick up a cell phone. Okay. <laughs> well, that's pretty definite. <laughs> Well, cell phones are designed right. precisely using the equations of quantum theory. Mm. So if you don't believe it, don't pick it up. Yeah. You know, I'd like to talk to you about Einstein and race. Because sure. I'm learning, and I think the world is learning through some new research that perhaps shouldn't have taken so long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of going back and looking at the facts that, that this was a huge concern of his. Um yeah. <laughs> and you grew up, in my understanding, in a racially segregated world. I mean, it was the 50s and Absolutely. 60s, but it was Orlando, Florida. And, um, right. and it, was, it was what he saw and was shocked by once he came to this country that he, having left Nazi Germany, considered to be a place of tolerance and equality of all people. Sure. How do you? How did you? Is this something that you've always known about Einstein, or how no, did you learn it's about not. It? It's certainly not. Uh, first of all, let me just let me let me answer your question, and then I want to expand a little bit. Yeah. I learned about Einstein's comments on race in the early '90s. A friend of mine, who's also an African American physicist, was simply in conversation with him one day, and he said, "Do you know what Einstein said about race?" And I said, "No." And then he directed me to a book called Out of My Later Years. Yeah. And in the book, there is a short essay um, which, well, I, I have it here with me. And if you don't mind, I, I can read some of no, it. No, do, please. It's a, he's, Einstein says, in the United States, everyone feels assured of his worth as an individual. No one humbles himself before another person or class. Even the great differences in wealth the superior power of a few cannot undermine this healthy self-confidence and natural respect for the dignity of one's fellow man. There is, however, a somber point in the social outlook of Americans. Their sense of equality and human dignity is mainly limited to men of white skins. And then he goes on to say, the more I feel American, the more this situation pains me. I can escape a feeling of complicity only by speaking out. Yeah. Many a sincere person will answer me. Our attitude towards Negroes is a result of unfavorable experiences which we have had living side by side with Negroes in this country. They are not our equals in intelligence, sense of responsibility, or reliability. Einstein answers, I am firmly convinced that whoever believes this suffers from a fatal misconception. Your ancestors dragged these black people from their homes by force, and in the white man's quest for wealth and an easy life, they were ruthlessly suppressed and exploited, degraded into slavery. When I first came across these quotes, I was, 
I was thunderstruck, to, yeah. to, to yeah. be quite frank with you. Right. I could not have imagined that A, Einstein would have made such quotes, but we know he did, and we know he attached great importance to them because in a book on essays, or what he considered his most important essays, this essay is included. So mm -hmm. we know he thought a lot about this. But after I accepted that, you know, that he actually said such things, <laughs> then the next puzzle for me was why? <laughs> right. Because, you know, prior, prior to um, Martin Luther King, I don't know of any other Nobel laureate who spoke so forcefully for the rights of African Americans. Right, and so here's this is, German Jewish. So here's this German super Jewish genius guy. physicist right. who's working out gravity. I know. Right. So how in the world does he get there? Yeah. This is something that had, that puzzled that had puzzled me and has puzzled me for a long time. But um, I was recently at a at a meeting uh, at, at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. And there was someone else on the panel who was presenting Einstein's evolution, not as a scientist, but sort of as a person. And one of the things that came out of that was, I, for me, uh, some insights into, into Einstein, which when I reflected upon how he worked as a scientist, I said, wait a minute, there's a common thread here. You see, you'll remember earlier in, uh, in our conversation, I talked about Einstein as an exceptional scientist working in an exceptional way. And I concentrated on the fact that when he had these fundamental instances of insight, he cast them in the language of parables. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's interesting about the parables is he asked the question, what if? What if this, then what follows? When you think of this as sort of the mode in which Einstein explores science, to me it is not such a great leap for him to have asked the question, what if I was a person of African heritage? What if I was a woman? And mm -hmm. because he had the capability to ask the what if question, then it meant that it opened a door to what I think is perhaps the deepest marker of human, of humanity, and that's empathy. Right. I think it's our ability to empathize that marks us most profoundly as human. The golden rule is about, essentially, you do not wish to do unto others what you would not have done to mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. The law is about not doing things to others that you would not want done to you. So. This whole sense of empathy, I believe, is what, for Einstein, allowed the exploration of the what if, I mean, was the result of the what if question. What if I was? Right. What would that mean? And when I think of that, I, as I said, that, that to me allows me to understand how he got there. That's the only way I've reached in, in thinking about this. And I've I've been giving this thoughts. Think I've been thinking about this for about a decade or so. Right. This is the only thing that makes sense to me so far. Well, and we can also guess, and I, I mean, I think there's evidence to the fact that because he lived as a Jewish scientist in as as Nazism approached, that that also oh. inclined him. Perhaps. I mean, he had this experience of being a minority, a persecuted minority. And he, seemed... he was certainly primed to mm -hmm. recognize oppression uh, mm -hmm. in whatever guise he encountered it. Uh, you know, we all know of him as a great scientist, but um, 
you know, there's this very famous quote he made about his scientific work, and someone asked him uh, if it were proven right or wrong, what would it mean? And he says something like, well, if I'm right, the Germans will say I'm a German, and the French will say I'm a Jew. Um, If I'm wrong... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I said that. I've said that wrong. If I'm right, the Germans will proclaim me a German, and the French will proclaim me a citizen of the world. <laughs> okay. But if I am wrong, the French will say I'm a German, and the Germans will say I'm a Jew. Right. So you know, it's clear that his his experiences before coming to the U.S. primed him to be very sensitive to matters of discrimination and and our species' capability of treating each other in such inhumane ways. Have you read the new book, um, Einstein and Race, by Fred Einstein on Race and Racism by Fred Jerome and Roger Taylor? Well, not entirely. Well, let me first of all let me just make a comment. Fred is a friend of mine. Fred and I uh, met each other for the first time about two years ago, and Fred had come across the some quotes I had made about Einstein and Einstein's comments on race. He was apparently already in the process of researching the book and was amazed that some of us actually knew about this, but somehow it had not sort of been publicly discussed very much. So at that point, he and I actually exchanged email uh, with him introducing a message of introduction and asking me how I came to know these things about Einstein Mm -hmm. and then also relaying the fact that he was working on this book about Einstein and Einstein's interactions in the African-American community on uh, in, in um, Princeton. Yeah. I mean, I think what's so, so striking about that, about the, it's just full of stories. And, you know, it's not just, um, it's not just him having kind of a grand sense of, of the injustice of, of racism in America. It's, it's him spending a lot of his time hanging out on Witherspoon Street in, in Princeton and bef- having great friends um, in that African-American well, neighborhood. I, you know, I don't know if you've read any of the reviews of the book, but other reviewers have other other different viewpoints about, Do they? about what? what the book actually says. Oh, yeah, you should go online and try to find some. What are are they critical of it? Yeah, yeah, some are, uh, certainly are. And well, saying that the, the stories are, uh, uh, the authors draw conclusions about Einstein that are right. that are overdrawn compared to the data that's provided. That's a, you know, that's one well, class of criticism. I mean, they may I've be seen. doing that, but I but it's it is a fact that he was great friends with Paul Robeson and that he oh, yes. that he co-chaired co-founded this anti-lynching absolutely. initiative Something, that was held absolutely. in great suspicion by uh, right Jay and Edgar supported Hoover. the Scottsboro Boys yeah. when they were almost lynched in uh, yeah. the South. Yes, I mean no, there, we you know there's good factual hard evidence that uh-huh. he did these things. So people cannot come along and claim as uh, for for example was done for so long with Thomas Jefferson that these were family myths, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not family myths with uh, Albert Einstein. They're, the evidence is there. Um, you know, I, people will obviously take away from these books different things. I was surprised to hear the, to read the stories. I was surprised to hear about the, uh, the uh, in some sense, the, uh, the depth to which, to which Einstein uh, exerted himself to learn about the nature of what it meant to be an African-American in this culture. But you see, that's consistent with the earlier thing that I said about being able to ask the what-if question. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that a scientist does in asking the what-if question is, first, we try to go out and gather facts, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, in some ways, you can view his interaction as his going out 
and asking the and gathering the facts before posing the what if question. It's kind of these scientific virtues of curiosity and creativity transposed to the social sphere, I guess. Yes, and that's a comment I guess I made uh, at the meeting at uh, oh. Adolphus Gustavus okay. that that to me, uh, after I thought about it, it I, it should not have been a surprise to me that in some sense there's a consistent view of what, what the mind of Albert Einstein is doing, mm. whether you look at his science or whether you look at his pronunciations in the uh, larger domain of human be- of human societies. Hmm. Oh, this is great. I um, you know, I also I, I, I when I look at some of that history of his engagement with race and with African Americans, I he I know he spoke at a historic black college at a time in his life when he you know was turning down Harvard and you know yes right and you know then when I read in, the, indeed indeed that's true Lincoln Lincoln, yes. Lincoln that's right in 1946 yeah. absolutely and you know I see that, that you're working with physics departments at historic black colleges and you know I can only think that um, and you are the first African American to hold an endowed chair in physics at a major research institution in the United States and I can only imagine that he would have cheered you on. <laughs> Well, you know, it would be nice to think that. Um, let me just say it this way. Uh, the fact that I, earlier I referred to people like me as being his inheritors. Mm-hmm. I, I feel myself, I count myself in some sense doubly fortunate because, you see, I get to be an inheritor not just of his scientific accomplishment, but I also get to be an inheritor in a very special way with regard to his concern for the for the uh, unity of mankind, and that's something that I, most of my colleagues don't share. So, mm-hmm. it's something that is a very great source of joy in my life. Hmm. I see that you've also been doing some work in Africa. I mean, one thing that jumped out at me was that you've advised the government of South Africa on on the use of their natural national physics infrastructure and economic development. I wonder, this is just speculation, but it seems to me that the way the world has advanced, um, I mean, just globalization, the interconnectedness, um, is something that is very much in line with Einstein's vision. Um, Well, it's not just his vision. One thing that I guess is not particularly clear in the public discussion is that science has been globalized for over a century. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, It it is inconceivable to us who do science that we wouldn't be talking to our colleagues all over the world. Earlier we talked about Maxwell and his wonderful contributions. Uh, Even uh, this is like the 1870s. Science by that time had, uh, if not become globalized, uh, was very very shortly thereafter to do so. Uh, The fact that that the good ideas that drive science can come from people in diverse cultures and societies is one that I think scientists picked up on pretty quickly because we saw direct benefit. In fact, I, I've made an argument in an essay about why we as scientists likely um, have a, well, certainly, let me put it this way, why I as a scientist believe that diversity is an issue of such great importance. And it has little to do with morality. I mean, those are great arguments, but if I think about how science works, I believe that I can see where diversity plays a role in fostering innovation. 
And if that's the case, and we want the most robust and uh, the most uh, accomplished science of which our population can 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 create, then it's got to be a diverse population, hmm. because that very diversity is where you get the outliers asking the questions that nobody else comes up with. I wonder if if Einstein would have come at it that way. It seems to me that his um well, in some well, ways, you know, he yeah. was. Not, remember, he was also an outsider. Yes, I mean, he was. Right, and so yeah. I suspect that that you know he he would have been able to. I, I'm not aware of any particular comments, but I, I think if we could have pressed him, mm-hmm. I suspect that he would have said that somehow being an outsider is not always a bad thing. That that the outsider often carries because of a slightly different viewpoint, yeah. the seed for an innovation. Mm-hmm. And is a critical part of that whole, which is another yes. just another way of thinking about why that kind of diversity and innovation matters. Yes. All right. Well, I want to pause for just a moment. I want to ask my colleagues behind the glass if they have questions they want me to ask you. I'm going to be quiet for a moment while I'm listening oh my in my goodness. headphones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then I'll be back. Very good. Okay. They're they're speechless. They <laughs> this is actually rare. They, <laughs> I, I have two more questions for you. Um, okay. I I haven't asked you to do this up to now and I, I wonder if um you would give me your <laughs> one to three sentence explanation of string theory. <laughs> oh, people th- ask me to do that all the time. <laughs> can so, you do that? Well, I can make the attempt. Okay. Um okay. let me just say before I do so, however, that I have it's it's very your timing is kind of interesting on this subject because I have just essentially completed a, a course for a company called the Teaching Company. Mm-hmm. It's a twenty four lecture course on string theory. Oh, and I try to provide for the public uh, a first time glimpse in a way that I've never seen before uh, what's actually going on in string theory. So that will be I'm told complete in the spring. We actually finished the filming essentially the day before yesterday. Oh, we may be able to and link to that on our website also. Let people know. Okay, it's out there. well, yeah. uh, okay, well, I can put you in touch with the company okay. about that. But okay. so you asked me to a- answer a question. Yeah. Let me make the attempt. Okay. If you look at physics from the time of Isaac Newton, all of our physics is predicated on uh, on a simple belief. That is. If you could understand the rules of billiards and how the balls bounce around and move, you could understand everything about the universe. Now, this may sound like a very strange statement, but you see, when Isaac Newton wrote his great equation that derives essentially all of classical physics, what he had in mind was a little ball. It's something we physicists call a geometrical point particle. So just think of a little ball and try to figure out how it moves. Mm That's what his equations actually do. They tell us how little balls move. And if you apply those ideas over and over again, you find out that eventually you can get to the moon. Um, you can figure out how to um, plot the paths of um, cannon shells, which, you know, okay. at a certain point, <laughs> we might not, you know, it, it's not something you know, we should hold, hold up with great uh, 
pleasure or pride, but nonetheless, it's a useful thing to know in the world. So you have to know what uh, kind of force to apply and what exactly. how things behave to and how make things them respond. do and so, what you want them to do. Right. So the model for all of that work is that the universe can be understood in terms of little balls. Okay. Now, this idea actually gets elaborated in a, a certain kind of way by Einstein. He just sort of tells you, changes the stage upon which the little balls exist. It is only it is modified yet again uh, by quantum mechanics and quantum theory. We've talked about that. But again, little balls actually play a role in quantum theory, but in a very subtle way. And so if you look so at in, all in of our quantum phys- theory, they don't they don't necessarily go where you think they're going to go, right? Which is- That's exactly right. The more technical term is that in quantum theory, there's something that de- that describes how little balls can sometimes behave like waves. Right. And this something actually depends on little balls. <laughs> That's okay. one way to think about right. it. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so all of our phys- physics we got for a couple of hundred years by thinking about little balls. Well, you see, this idea of little balls also ran us into a problem. We could not understand how gravity and quantum theory work together if the universe is based on the idea of little balls. And so string theory is a very simple statement. Forget the little balls, replace them by little uh, strands, little filaments, or as I sometimes say, little pieces of pasta. Because if you do that, just as Einstein talks two stories, the one about traveling at the speed of light or the other one about falling, leads to uh, equations. If you replace the balls in Newton's thoughts by little strands, you get string theory. And another analogy that I, I don't know where I read this in something of yours or someone else, that these are finite curves is another way to think yeah. about these yeah, strings. Yeah. So, yeah. so that would mean that... Um, so, so that would mean that the effects uh, that that Einstein, the kind of kinds of laws of physics, where something you know you throw a ball and it goes in the direction you throw it, that that could be true at some level, and also that at the quantum level, um, the movement might not be what you expect. But if you had a curve joining them, then you could still imagine the laws at work. Well, it Is doesn't that... <laughs> quite work that way. Okay. No. Um, Strings are intrinsically quantum mechanical in nature, so and so at some deep level, we can we can never quite ignore their their quantum aspects. But the thing that they buy us, which we never could understand, at least we have not been able to understand so far, is if the universe is quantum at the smallest level, Mm -hmm. that is, has all this weirdness about it, and if the universe is one where gravity is described as Einstein gave, how can these two things be consistent? Mm-hmm. As long as you stick to a, 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 ball, a little ball viewpoint, the answer is they can't. But as soon as you switch to spaghetti or pasta, the answer is they can. Okay. That's probably as much as I can grasp. Thank well, you. <laughs> the course on string theory, I hope, will do oh, a well, better. I mean, you know, and having said that, it's thrilling. You know, even just the terms that you use about to describe, you know, multidimensional vibrating strings. Um, I don't, you know, with the finite curves, it's very intriguing. I, I think that. Well, the language, I, the language around string theory is certainly colorful, to mm-hmm, say the least. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of true in general about theoretical physics. Um, in some, in some, you know, we earlier talked about this idea that that there are these pictures that we physicists have. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for us, you see, 
there's an analogy that I, another analogy I like to give between music. You know, in music we have musical scores, or you can play the scores on an instrument, right? Right. Both of these things are music. The score is music. The performance is music. Hmm. Well, for well, for us physicists, you see, there's the mathematics. That's physics. We, that is, we're using the mathematics to describe some aspect of the world. But there are all these, also these pictures that we have in our heads about what the mathematics is describing. That's very helpful. Now, before computers, it was, it was very difficult to get these pictures in front of other people. But you see, computers are to mathematics as pianos are to scores. Namely, computers are devices for playing mathematics. That's what people do. That's mm. what you do when you go to see The Lord of the Rings or mm. Spider-Man. Those images as you see on the screen are enormous numbers of equations running across the screens. Mm. So computers are perfect devices for playing mathematics like music. That's wonderful. And and I'm assuming that string theory is also elegant and beautiful, these values that were so ah, important to well, Einstein. Certainly for those of us who <laughs> work on it. I mean, you know, I, I you know, when I hear the sort of non-scientists sort of say those words about us, I always think I hear a bit of a chuckle in the, in, in no, the background. No, I've actually interviewed enough of you scientists to, to really have reverence for that, for the way you use those words. Well, I'm not sure you should have reverence, but <laughs> but often I hear a chuckle mm-hmm. because, you know, it's like, what are these people talking about? Beauty and elegance. Elegant spaghetti. <laughs> right. So so I have a story that I, I try to get try to get the point across, and it goes... Imagine a planet on which there was no sound at all. Could music exist on such a planet? Well, you might first be tempted to say no. But let's assume that creatures live on that planet that are about as intelligent as we are, and that for whatever reason, some small number of them come to create scores, musical scores. So what do they do? Well, they'll be called the musicians, obviously. And they'll be talking about the beauty and the power of these symbols on paper. And most of the, their fellow creatures on the planet will look at them and say, gee, what in the world are these, what are they talking about? You see, that's what it's like to be a theoretical physicist here because for us, having access to the mathematics means we read scores. Hmm. But real musicians who read scores, I'm often told, can actually, in some sense, hear the music in their mind. Right. And so that's what it's like for us, and that's why we use the words like elegance and beauty, because in some sense, we're like those musicians on that planet with no sound. We're the only ones who have access to that kind of beauty. Hmm. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Um, we, we may be done. I, I think I want to ask you okay. one more large question. <laughs> and you've certainly touched on this in the course of our conversation. You know, does working at these this cutting edge of physics... Does this you know how does this shape your sense of of words like humanity and ethics or the way you sure. live with these words? Sure. Well, if I was a musical composer, you could ask me the question: How does your work composing these great works of music uh, impact upon your sense of humanity and ethics? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know it would occur to you or someone else to ask a composer such a question, right. but it certainly could be asked. Well, you see, what we do in physics is not different from that. And so in that, these efforts are things that people do where you know, we're just as fallible and frail as the rest of us. Scientists 
as a friend of mine once said, scientists are no different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. That's a true statement. You know, we, we try, we try, and we're committed to trying. Um, we're, I mean, I think most of us who are scientists live in a condition that most people would find intolerable because one thing that I think is true about people in general is that we abhor uncertainty. Uh, I think that a large part of understanding human behavior is an attempt to create certainty, <laughs> not, uh, sometimes not always where it actually exists, but we, we have to have a sense of certainty for security at some level. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are scientists, however, we come to live knowing that we can never be completely certain. And this is a state that I think if someone ever does a MRI study about this, I have a suspicion that they'll find uncertainty is actually uh, perceived in the brain as akin to some sort of pain. Hmm. But those of us who are scientists essentially learn to live with that. So if you ask me the impact that doing science has on my humanity and sense of ethics, I, d- I cannot imagine that it has any less of an impact than it would on a, a composer or a poet or an author or anyone who's striving to use that part of our mind that we, you know, we call creative to bring some sense of order and harmony to the kind of chaos that, that we find. So, you know, it, one is humbled by it. One is, and I've quoted Einstein on these things and his sense of mystery. I think those of us who work in these areas come away with a deep sense of mystery and a deep sense of our own humanity, hmm. perhaps different from that which most people experience, but I don't think it's any less human. I don't think it's any less part of the human story, nor the human condition. Yeah, you know, I, I asked Freeman Dyson, I, I quoted this, there's this C.P. Snow quote about Einstein that um, if Einstein hadn't discovered re- general relativity when he did, perhaps it still would not be discovered. No one would have done that. And I said, well, you know, what was it that was so special? What was it that it, that allowed him to do that? And he said, well, he said, this is this is a work of art as much as science. He said, this is like asking, you know, what makes Mozart great? You just have to listen to it. <laughs> and that's kind of the answer you just gave me also. Except that in Einstein's case, general relativity would have been discovered you think special so? Special relativity would have been discovered. Because you see, what's really special about Einstein is his ear. Um, let's talk about special relativity. You know, the fact that space and time somehow can get bent and tr- mm-hmm. get traded back and forth. The reason Einstein is the person who makes this discovery is because he has an ear that is more attuned to dissonance than essentially any of the other physicists of his time. Mm-hmm. You see, this dissonance I'm talking about is actually present when you consider the work of Newton and Maxwell. The two of them together cause this dissonance. Einstein is the person who resolves this dissonance. So unlike Freeman, um, if you ask me, would it have been created? I would claim yes, because this kind of dissonance was already present. And from my working in physics and looking at how my colleagues work and trying to think about sort of them in the bulk, there always seem to be people who are sensitive to these kinds of dissonant tones. Mm-hmm. It would have taken much longer yeah. in the case of general relativity. But in the case of special relativity, I can't imagine that, say, 20 years or around 20 to 30 years after Einstein actually wrote it, someone else probably would have. Mm-hmm. With general relativity, 
let me tell you a really weird fact that, again, is not something I see discussed much in the public. String theory is only is not science yet. We have not seen the evidence for it in the laboratory. But in the early 80s, a young physicist by the name of Daniel Friedan was working in a piece of mathematical physics that's essentially related to string theory. And what he showed is that by taking simply using consistent rule manipulations of this mathematics, that you can, without any assumptions, derive Einstein's equations of general relativity. Hmm. And so what that provides us with hmm. is an alternative history of how we would have gotten there. Wow. If Einstein had finished in 1905 and never given us the theory of general relativity, but if quantum theory had continued to develop, then we likely would have gotten to string theory at some point and then discovered as a consequence That's really general relativity. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yes. Is there anything I haven't asked you, anything you'd like to talk about about Einstein that we haven't gotten to? Oh, my goodness. Well, and Obviously, there's lots we haven't talked about, but There's lots burning. we haven't talked about, mm-hmm. Einstein. I, I think that uh, his practicality uh, is something that I, I find outstanding. Many people don't know it, but if I remember correctly, he... He actually got a patent for a refrigerator once. So this is someone, this is a practical man. Uh-huh. This is not some outer space cadet that's out there. Mm-hmm. And another of his quotes that's a real favorite of mine is, if you're out to describe the truth, leave elegance to the tailor. And he was talking about the clothes tailor. So, mm-hmm. you know, although he's this really, this, this commanding figure in physics, he leaves behind so many statements about himself that you know, tell us, hey, I was just like you. I'm one of you. I'm not different. Mm. Uh, and in fact, one of his most beautiful quotes is a statement about the the difference between the estimations of his power that the public give him and those that, that he ascribes to himself. He calls that difference grotesque. And he then further goes on to say something to the effect that um, that ascribing such superhuman powers to an individual is always unwarranted. And so in his case, I think that that's the, the message that people should take away, is read what he said about himself, not what hmm. all of us Johnny-come-lately say about him. Well, I am just delighted that you did this. I hope it was a good experience for you. And uh, It was much less painful than <laughs> I had imagined well, it would good. be. I knew it would be, and uh, this is just going to be such a huge contribution to the show. So we'll, we will okay. be... Letting you know, we'll send you a CD and let you know when the website goes live. Oh, thank live you. And... My wife, in fact, explicitly asked yes. me whether she was going to be able she to hear this. She won't be able to hear it, and uh, you'll you'll be. Well, we're going to have you know we have special funding for the NEH from this, so we're really going to have a very wonderful, extensive website, and um, we'll okay. let you know as that all rolls out. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Sure, yeah. uh, it was a great opportunity, and uh, well, I'm glad I was able to make a contribution. Yeah, you definitely were. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.